Since 1968, Locust Magazine has been providing science fiction and fantasy fans with the most comprehensive industry coverage around. Every month, you'll find news covering publishers, conferences, and awards from around the globe, reviews for books and short stories from notable critics, insightful interviews with top authors, as well as up-and-coming talent, extensive listings of books and magazines published in the U.S. and the U.K., bestseller lists, promotions, commentary, color photos, and more. And now Locust can be delivered to your inbox every month. Just log on to locustmag.com today to begin your 6, 12, or 24-month subscription, available as digital download, print, or both. If you love speculative fiction, be it fantasy, science fiction, or horror, Locust Magazine is the publication to keep you up to speed on the latest industry news each and every month. Hugo award-winning coverage, unlike any other magazine around. So what are you waiting for? Visit locustmag.com. That's locustmag.com. And subscribe today. Hey there, it's Rob from the Grim Tidings Podcast. Thanks again for joining us for October, our month-long celebration of horror fiction all month long here on the show. And of course, we're going to finish in proper Halloween fashion by giving away a six-month digital subscription to Locust Magazine. To enter, just email us at grimdarkfiction at gmail.com. That's grimdarkfiction at gmail.com. And in the subject line, just write trick or treat. And the first person to email us after the episode drops will pick up a digital subscription to Locust Magazine. And again, special thanks to the awesome folks at Locust Magazine for their support. Thanks for listening and have a safe and happy Halloween. Hi, this is Paul Tremblay, author of Disappearance at Devil's Rock, A Head Full of Ghosts, and Cooking the Paul Tremblay Way, and you're listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. Today's guest is the author of A Disappearance at Devil's Rock and the award-winning A Head Full of Ghosts. As a writer of horror, dark fantasy, and science fiction, his other novels include The Little Sleep, No Sleep to Wonderland, Swallowing a Donkey's Eye, and more. His essays and short fiction have appeared in the LA Times and numerous year's best anthologies, and he's also co-edited four anthologies including Creatures, 30 Years of Monster Stories. He also serves on the board of directors for the Shirley Jackson Awards. When he's not writing, he works as a math teacher just outside Boston. The Grim Tidings podcast proudly welcomes Mr. Paul Tremblay to the show. Thanks, Rob. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, great to have you on. We are celebrating October. It's all horror all month long, and you are the headliner, my friend. It's the Halloween episode. We have Paul Tremblay, the author of A Head Full of Ghosts and Disappearance at Devil's Rock, in addition to many other novels. But we're here today. We're going to talk about scary shit. We're going to talk about writing. We're going to talk about uh, A Head Full of Ghosts, which uh, apparently is kind of a big deal. Um <laughs> Stephen King himself actually tweeted out, uh, this book is scary as shit, and uh must have been pretty cool to have Stephen King tweeting about you, Paul. Yeah, well, I'm going to admit for the first time that I run Stephen King's Twitter account, so it was fraudulent. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, uh, no, it was absolutely amazing. Uh, you mean October 19th, 2015? <laughs> uh, 7.53 yeah, p.m. <laughs> I, right. No, it was actually sort of at night. I was, it was sort of, it was funny. It was like a cranky day for me. I had just turned in actually the first draft of A Head Full of Ghosts. I mean, uh, my, the first draft of Disappearance of Devil's Rock to my agent. You know, and he had some comments about it, you know, which he was right about, but I really didn't want to hear it even though I knew he was right. So I was kind of cranky and there were, I was moving like furniture around the house and it was really hot and it's never fun to move furniture around. Uh, yeah. And then my phone just started blowing up as they say, you know, cause other friends and people had seen the tweet before I did. So 
I just stopped what I was doing. I have to admit that I got teary-eyed seeing that sure. Stephen King you know, not only had read the book, but really enjoyed it. Uh, I used to open the fridge, grab three uh, like 10% alcohol beers that I'd been saving for whatever occasion and just sat down in front of my laptop uh, and just you know looked, watched people reacting and, and drank my face off. <laughs> when you were getting those alerts on your phone, was it like a ding or was it like a, a vibration or what sort of? Yeah, alert? it was a vibration. I think I had it in my pocket. So it was just like my phone just started. And I was like, oh, what's going on? Uh, I was like, holy crap. (laughs) (laughs) So for people who haven't read uh, A Head Full of Ghosts, kind of give us maybe your elevator pitch or kind of your description of what that book is about. Well, if I'm being obnoxious, I guess the the first way I described it to people was it's a postmodern, secular update of The Exorcist, I guess. You know, otherwise, I guess the bigger sort of plot story behind it is uh, that the novel features these two sisters, Mary and Marjorie. Mary is uh, five years younger. Actually, no, she's younger than that. Six years younger. She's eight years old when her sister Marjorie is 14 and the older sister Marjorie is either having a psychological break or a psychotic break, a schizophrenic break, or maybe there's something supernatural going on. And, um, her parents, her, her father lost his job and he's been out of work for like a year and a half and they're so desperate for money. You know, they allow a uh, reality TV crew to come in and document an attempted possession. Now the, the younger daughter, Mary, or the younger sister, Mary is telling this, telling the story 15 years after the fact she's being interviewed by a uh, by a, an author who you know bought the rights to her story so i've just made it sound like really convoluted but it's not that hard to follow <laughs> <laughs> no i find the uh novel incredibly accessible i just picked it up and started reading and uh and uh loving it so far what kind of gave you the seed for the idea of a head full of ghosts where did that start from it was funny for me it was one of those extremely rare i mean definitely with a novel extremely rare like aha moments like as a writer you dream of just like you know the story idea just like sort of knocking you over mm-hmm. it was february it was february of 2013 and i was 100 pages into this other book uh that i was sort of stuck on i'd been working on it on and off for like a year and i was only 100 pages in which isn't much at all um so i was looking for excuses not to work on that book and i was just reading um what i was calling research but it was pretty much just anything that was related to horror or apocalypse so anyway i uh, i ordered this book from centipede press which is this wonderful specialty press in denver and uh, they do they do a series of books called studies in the night film and they had produced a, a book on the the film the exorcist um it's just a collection of you know, some of its crew interviews and director interviews but the bulk of the book are, are these essays about the movie the exorcist and a lot of these essays are about the politics of the film and the politics of the time uh and there was one essay that was actually a investigative a journalistic piece of, uh, where the journalist tried to go back to find the, the supposed real case that inspired The Exorcist. And basically, he, he, he concluded it was total bullshit that not only did the case not happen, like some of the people that supposedly experienced The Exorcist, he couldn't even find that they existed. So anyway, I, I was, while I was reading all the stuff about The Exorcist, you know, a movie that you know, I, I loved and is famous within horror circles, it sort of just occurred to me, geez, you know, there's been a ton of zombie, obviously zombies everywhere right now. There's been quite a few literary updates of the werewolf, the vampire never goes away. I had a hard time thinking of a, uh, a possession or an exorcism sort of novel that had come out within the last 10 years, at least at the time of the writing of the book or that, at the time that I had the idea for the book. So I started thinking, geez, how would I write a how would I write an exorcism story? And right off the bat, I knew that I wanted to take like a, a skeptical point of view or a skeptical approach to the material. And then I had the two sisters. And really, it was it was almost like within a day or two, I, I had like the whole story. It, or not the whole story, but definitely most of it in my head. I had the three-part structure. I had the beginning and the end, and I just kind of had to make up the stuff in the middle. Now, the story's told from the point of view of uh, Mary, who is right. a young girl when some of it's being retold. Uh, do, do you think that adds to the, the scariness of it, 
to see it from the eyes of a young girl, seeing her sister kind of, you know, losing her shit one way or the other, either it's a demon or something else is going on. Yeah, definitely. And, and uh, I think it's even, I think hopefully it, it's effective too, because even though it's, it's Mary who's 23 recounting what happened to her when she was eight. So she's sort of like straddling both worlds. Mm. Um, you know, she sort of realizes the eight-year-old self didn't necessarily know what was happening, and she's just sort of working off her memories. But yeah, uh, I know I, I'm as a writer, I'm definitely drawn to stories either from the point of view of children or stories about being a parent and sort of all the anxiety that that's there. I mean, to me, being a kid in particular, it's one of the few universal experiences we all have. You know, everyone who's alive and reading now has been a child at some point in their life, uh, as far as I know. <laughs> um, no, and for me, I just, I just vividly remember, you know, especially some of the early teen years, both the excitement and the anxiety of, you know, being afraid of the future and excited for it. Uh, I don't know, and it, I, I keep going back to that and playing with it in stories. What what inspired you to take kind of that skeptical approach? Are you a skeptic yourself, or? Oh yeah, uh, I mean, because one of the things, you know, definitely when reading the or reading those essays on the Exorcist, I mean, I don't believe that there are demons, and certainly they're not possessing people. Um, but that said, <laughs> so I, I would say, uh, so I would say that's like me 96% of the time, mm-hmm. you know, a skeptic, I don't, you know, agnostic atheist, I don't believe in that stuff, but you know, there's 4% of the time, three, I don't know. I haven't worked it out even though I teach <laughs> math, but there is a certain percentage <laughs> amount of the time where it's like, huh, if I'm in the house by myself and it's really dark and I hear a noise, you know, uh, what the fuck? <laughs> I, I start believing maybe something else is happening or if I have like this really crazy dream and I wake up in the middle of the night, there's that feeling that there's the sort of the questioning of the unknown of, OK, wait a minute, maybe there's something, you know, and then you wake up the next morning you're like, ah, come on, you're being a moron. Um, so I don't know, for me, like uh, for both the, the two horror novels that just came out, that sort of I, I feel like I'm wrestling with myself on the page. You know, there is a potential supernatural element. And a lot of the time I'm just trying to explain it away for myself. But, you know, obviously there are times in the novels where it gets more difficult to explain away. Was there a point when you were writing uh, a head full of ghosts where you're like, this is really fucking good. And I'm probably going to win a fucking Bram Stoker award for this shit. <laughs> I'm going to get it. I'm going to win five Bram Stoker. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wish I could go back in time and go into the headspace where I was when I was writing that book, because in the, in the glow of the aftermath of having written the book, I'm like, Oh yeah, that book was easy to write, but you always feel that way once you're done with that book. And then the next book always feels like the hardest thing you've written. Mm-hmm. But I will say, I had a really good feeling about A Head Full of Ghosts. Once I got past the first 100 pages, I had like a little crisis. But uh, once I, I got through those first 100 pages, I felt like I felt like I had something really good. I was very excited about it. I had no idea if it was scary or not. I thought I thought it was, you know, it was disturbing. I thought people would think sort of, you know, how I play with the horror tropes and stuff would be cool. And But I had no idea if it would be scary. So actually, my favorite story is when I gave it to my agent to sell. One of the first editors he sent it to, uh, within like two days, he got a phone call from her at 1130 at night. You know, which you usually don't get phone calls from an editor. Right. And he said that she didn't even say her name. He just answered the phone and she said, I just read the tongue scene and I had to reach out and hear someone's voice. And then she hung up. <laughs> I was like, yes, I guess it is scary for some people. <laughs> yeah, I just read that too. <laughs> yeah. That's a fun gym. scene to read out loud. I kept wanting yeah. to highlight quotes from the book and put them online. Just like, this is yeah. fucked up. <laughs> yeah, to it. I was, I was trying to find stuff I could say to Rob when he pisses me off next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, listen, so Rob, Rob, you're gonna wear his tongue around your neck. <laughs> I'm gonna wear your withered tongue around my neck. Yeah, Rob. I say that to people all the time. <laughs> it goes over well. Hashtag withered tongue. Your, your, your math students, are you like better get that assignment in? Or? 
Yeah. Yeah, I typically I don't go to the tongue. I may like threaten to stab them in the spleen or something. That sounds more jokey and less personal than taking their withered tongue. <laughs> so now a head full of ghosts is being made into a movie. Yeah. That's it's in the early early process, but yeah. Somewhat exciting. You know. Definitely. Absolutely. Fingers crossed. So I and it's with a uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s production company. So yeah, so there's two production companies. One is called Allegiance Theater. They were sort of the first on board. Uh, Allegiance Theater has produced their most recent movie was Money Monster. Oh, okay. um, yeah, and I think they did Juno and, and Up in the Air. Cool. So yeah, you know, definitely a very cool production company, and they they sort of got Robert Downey Jr.'s production company, Team Downey, interested as well. So right now, I think we're close. Hopefully, they're close on having a screenplay done and accepted. I know that uh, the two screenwriters, Benjamin Davis Collins and uh, Luke Piotrowski, uh, turned in a draft, and it was it was well received. And now they're just working on the second draft. So hopefully, you know, within the next month or so, you know, they might start looking for uh, directors and all that fun stuff. Sweet. What's your involvement on that? Is, do you get to QC that uh, screenplay or anything, or? Uh, I have no official involvement, which is fine by me. Right. <laughs> uh, but uh, the two screenwriters are, are very nice, and I talk to them all the time on Twitter. Okay. Which is such a 21st century thing to say. I did actually have uh, – when I went to L.A. this summer in late July, I had dinner with the both of them. and You know, very great guys, and they're, they're doing some really cool work too. They have a bunch of other projects going at the same time. Um, yeah, so, I mean, so far everyone sounds like it's going well. You know, just hopefully it keeps going well. I only talk to Phil on Twitter. If we're not doing yeah. a podcast, so no, you don't. I never <laughs> used to. One thing that's interesting that that I like about uh, your work is the uh, aspect of technology that's brought in. For example, you mentioned on your website when you're talking about disappearance at Devil's Rock, the the idea of like Slender Man or like some kind of creature going viral. How do you think technology plays into the way you portray horror for today's audience? So far, I mean, my, my interest in telling a horror story tends to be I want to tell a story of the now. You know, I want the story to, to sort of hopefully, you know, implicate the now and, and appeal to readers of the now, I guess. I don't know how many times yeah. I can say the now. That's annoying. Live the now, man. Say <laughs> like the now. Ugh, I hate myself. <laughs> the now. Um, Hashtag the now. Right. No, so it's funny. Some of it is almost a little bit of me being sort of like an obstinate jerk because there are a lot of horror writers who are like, oh, you know, I hate stories with cell phones and you can't have a – I think even R.L. Stein had said the horror story died with the cell phone, which is totally bullshit, hmm. obviously. No, so I mean, to me, the idea of worrying about deathless prose is, is sort of ridiculous. I mean, I'm worrying about being able to sell a story now. And if people are still alive and reading in 25, 30 years and they happen to read my book, that's great. And hopefully, I feel like if I if I put you know the references to technology or to Twitter or like in a head full of ghosts as a blogger, you know, even though people are like, oh, aren't you worried that it dates your your stories? I'm like, no. I mean, I feel like if I do it well enough, those things just aren't there to be there. They they're integral parts of the story. So even someone reading it who hasn't experienced the blogger or hasn't experienced maybe Twitter, you know, they'll understand just through the context of the story. And if anything else, maybe it informs them about the time that you know, or at least the setting in the time that my characters are experiencing the story. I like the feeling of, uh, you know, one, one show that, that blew up recently was uh, stranger things and yeah. people, people like that so much because it, it, it appealed to the eighties nostalgia in a way. Right. But what you're doing is, it's kind of modernizing classic ideas such as p- possession or uh, a disappearance in the wilderness. So I think one thing that we don't think about, 
as readers or artists is sometimes what what people are going to do in the future future when they go back and read stuff from 2000 or mm-hmm. 2010. We, we need that like stamp, like this is 2015 or this is sure. 2016. So I think that's a cool thing to integrate into your work. Yeah. I mean, and honestly, um, I think especially being at my age, you know, I feel like I'm fairly technologically savvy and especially, you know, in terms of social media and all that stuff, but I wasn't born into it. It was, you know, these are things that have been invented during my lifetime. And so I had to, to learn how to use it. You know, it's certainly a different experience for my, my kids who it's just sort of around them all the time. So it's, I feel like it's a more natural thing for them, but I don't know, coming from my perspective, you know, seeing, especially the, you know, the rise of social media, it's almost like the idea of, you know, just because we can do it, should we, you know, it happened so fast you know, you know, I don't think anyone, you know, knows what the consequences are or what the potential implications or side effects of, you know, being hooked online all the time are. I mean, clearly the internet has done a lot of good, but I also I think it's done a lot of bad. I think a lot of the political fracture within the West right now is, you know, can be traced to sort of the battle, the, these information wars, not to, uh, <laughs> and not to give Alex Jones any credit because that guy is a flaming asshole. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, the idea of there's all this misinformation out there and it's becoming increasingly difficult to mm-hmm. determine what's real and what isn't real. And there's these millions of people that, that, you know, get their information from places that are not giving them true information. And I find it actually, you know, I find it terrifying. But as a writer who's interested in usually writing horror stories, to me, that's really interesting and, and an and easy thing to work with. The idea that we're supposedly bombarded with all this data, but how much of this data is either accurate or how much of this data is actually going to help us. I like to pretend like nothing is true. <laughs> nothing is ever too? nothing yeah. is ever true everyone is lying so since this is october on the podcast we've been talking about scary shit with guests like uh, ellen datlow and armand rosemilia in addition to others so we're talking about scary shit since you scared the shit out of stephen king <laughs> we wanted to find out what exactly scares you paul tremblay oh man everything i'm like the world's biggest scaredy cat uh <laughs> You know, when I was a kid, especially, I grew up, there was a program in uh, just outside, of, I lived just outside of Boston. So in Massachusetts, there was this program called Creature Double Feature that they played on weekends. You know, so this is before cable, even, or at the start of cable. That's how old I am. Jesus Christ, I'm Methuselah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, so this program would show two horror movies. And usually the first one was a Godzilla or a kaiju movie. And the second one was, you know, some black and white movie or a horror or a hammer horror film. So to me, that was my introduction. Uh, I love the movies, but at the same time, they, you know, they totally terrified me. Uh, you know, I would sleep with the stuffed animals built around my head like a fortress. And I had uh, my younger brother, is, he's five years younger than me, but I would send him upstairs first, like a canary in the coal mine, just to see if he survived. You know, and if, he, if he survived the dark upstairs, then I could go up next. <laughs> you know, oddly enough, my brother became even more of like a horror fan than I. And, you know, growing up, he would like when he was 10, I think he watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I, I think I saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre for the first time like three years ago. So, uh, you know, he would do like all the movies that I couldn't handle. So I don't know. Yeah, I've been you know interested and frightened by horror all the time. Uh, you know, as an adult, what are my fears? Sort of, I don't know, everything. Uh, I had a short story collection come out in 2010 called In the Meantime. And most of those stories were about either the end of the world or pre-end of the world. You know, so that's certainly something that I spend time you know, worrying about. I mean, I grew up in the 80s and was totally terrified of nuclear war between Russia and uh, mm-hmm. the United States. You know, so those are fears that aren't nearly as fun as the stuff that you know i play around with in horror fiction but yeah i'm afraid of a lot of things pickles i hate pickles i wouldn't say i'm afraid of pickles but i definitely hate pickles what is it about pickles that irs you it must it's the pickling process i guess because i like cucumbers but i do not like wow. the pickle 
Yeah. The pickling process is quite terrifying. If you, Isn't if you it? Watch it. <laughs> I would imagine it's pretty uh, scary for the cucumbers. Right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They have to be yeah. pickled. One thing that's on my mind is when I was a kid, I was very skittish. And I've mentioned this before on the show. My dad would watch Godfather and, uh, you know, there's a scene where someone gets shot in the face. And I remember like shitting my pants or like crying <laughs> or something like when that happened. Uh, Do you think that's what kind of gets people into horror to begin with? Is there people that get easily scared? So it, it gives them some kind of like rush or something to be scared. I think that's definitely some of the population, but, uh, but it's funny, every year, like, with my classes, I'll ask at some point an extra credit question, like, what's the scariest movie you've ever seen? And, uh, you know, kids will end up talking. You know, some kids will write Snow White and be like, oh, I just don't like scary movies. Uh, <laughs> you know, because they, you know, they had the opposite reaction. They saw something terrifying when they were young, and they decided they never wanted to relive that experience. So I think it sort of works both ways. But honestly, horror has been such, like, a big part of my life for so long, I have a hard time sort of... <laughs> understanding how it isn't a big part of everybody's life, you know, in some form, because, you know, some of it, there's so much really good horror out there. I mean, I can understand reacting negatively to, to some of the bad horror, which is usually what Hollywood produces or Eli Roth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Those are the number two, one and two purveyors of shitty horror, in my opinion. Um, it's funny that it is definitely like, especially people who don't identify or who, who claim they don't like horror. That's the first thing they usually ask me is, you know, why do you like that stuff? Or why do you like that stuff? And then I ask them, why do you like to get punched in the face? No, <laughs> so if you could name the top scariest movie and or book, what's the, the top thing that has scared the shite oh, out of you, Paul? Yeah. Well, to be fair, I mean, maybe it's the math part of me because I teach math is I have to go by the thing that gave me the most nightmares uh, has to qualify as the scariest movie. Although, you know, right. I, I've seen it like 50 times now, but mm-hmm. when I saw Jaws in fifth grade, so I was 10 going on 11, I think. That scared the hell out of me. Hmm. You know, watching Quint skip it in half scarred me for life. <laughs> I have, as I've mentioned, I've since seen that movie, you know, probably 50 times because I do love it. It's one of my favorites. But I do not watch the scene where Quint gets bit in half. Sorry for the spoiler uh, alert oh. for all the people out there. <laughs> I actually uh, haven't seen it, Joel. Yeah. No, I can't, wa- I cannot watch it. Uh, you know, I, I watched, last summer I watched it. I watched the movie with my, she was 11 at the time, my daughter. And, uh, you know, I covered my face with the pillow and she covered her face with the pillow and Quint cut <laughs> it in half. I mean, that's still pretty awful because all you hear is him screaming. So it's probably worse for Emma. Mm. But, uh, yeah. And so then for, I mean, honestly, for at least 10 years after, I would have so many of my nightmares ended up as a shark nightmare. Even if the even if the nightmare didn't start off with sharks, I would end up in the water and be like, oh, no, a shark's going to come and a shark would come. So Jaws definitely gave me the most nightmares. And I think second place might actually be, even though I don't really enjoy that movie, it's not something I go and rewatch. Uh, the first Nightmare on Elm Street definitely had a lot of Freddy nightmares as well. And as far as scariest, yeah. <laughs> so as far as scariest book, I'll name a book that I didn't finish the first time that I tried reading it, and I wasn't necessarily a reader then. Uh, so I was 18, and I just had some serious back surgery. I had a spinal fusion because uh, I had scoliosis, curvature of the spine. Somewhat interesting. I was six foot when I went under, and I woke up six foot three because they took bone from my hip and metal rods and sort of straightened me out. <laughs> oh, so yeah. So I was going to be in the house all summer by myself, you know, just recovering from the major surgery. So I'm like, all right, what the hell am I going to do? Can't just watch TV all day. So my parents had uh, the paperback of it in the house. I'm like, all right, I'll try reading this. You know, and I read the first chapter, you know, with Pennywise and Georgie, you know, and the, the clown in the sewer. And I just took the book. <laughs> I, after I finished that chapter, I took the book and threw it across the room and said, there's no goddamn way I'm going to be sitting in the house by myself all summer. So it wasn't for like another five years after that, that I actually went back and read it. So 
That was certainly the most visceral reaction I've ever had to a book. <laughs> was the first chapter of it. What do you think about read- all this clown stuff happening right now? Is that- <laughs> yeah, my uh, my poor daughter, she's a sixth grader at the middle school. She says that's all the kids talk about at, at middle school is clowns. And you know, she, the first day she came home, she said, oh, the people, "Kids are saying there are these clowns killing people everywhere." And like, there are no clowns <laughs> killing people everywhere. Uh, but I got to get it on that somehow. <laughs> no, I didn't say that to her. Um, yeah, no, it is weird. So I, I made her a little bit happy because it was a story in some British town where there's a guy just who's dressing like Batman to chase the clowns. Yeah. I heard <laughs> yeah. that. So, so the world is a wonderful and totally messed up place. <laughs> yeah. 2016 is just a weird fucking year. Yeah. All across yeah. the board. Doesn't get any weirder. Nope. So you've done um, short fiction in addition to long novels. Yep. Uh, do you pr- have a preference for what you like to write? When I first started writing, it was almost exclusively uh, short fiction. It's funny. Now that I'm in novel mode, sort of, because I'm you know, just working on novels for you know, quite a long time, I'm finding it harder to mm-hmm. go back to short fiction. I do enjoy reading you know, excellent short stories. I mean, they are different forms, so it's hard to compare the two. It's nice to, after having written some novels, to write like a short story or two. But you know, I just actually finished a couple. Now it's it's time for me to go back to the novel that I started, and I'm excited to get back to the novel because actually the, I I owed two editors short stories, and I ended up writing three short stories because the first one that I wrote was awful. Uh, I had sent it to my friend and excellent writer Stephen Graham Jones to read, and thankfully he you know he's comfortable enough to be totally honest with me to tell me that yeah this doesn't work. You can take like the first page and junk everything else. I was like oh man that's harsh. Uh, but he was right. So yeah, no, I definitely enjoy writing short stories. You know, wish I had time to write more of them, but they, I feel like they have been, they have become harder to write just because I haven't been writing them as consistently as I once have. Have you found that as a novelist now, it's easier to write short stories when you want to, or because you're a more established novelist and you probably get a lot of people, uh, asking you for short stories for anthologies and stuff, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. In terms of like being able to place a short story, yeah, absolutely. It would be. It's. I, I only write short stories now if I'm asked for a, you know, asked to do it for a particular anthology. And uh-huh. you know, to be honest, I've turned down quite a few, you know, good anthologies just because you know I didn't have the proper time to donate to the, to the short story. I don't want to, just like rush something off and turn in something crappy. Um, you know, when I write a short story, it's almost the same process I've had from when I first wrote short stories. You know, I don't, I don't write them super fast. It's, you know, it takes me you know, a good two to three weeks, maybe four weeks sometimes to do a short story. And I can't work on two different things at once. So, you know, if I'm working on the novel, that's okay. I have to write the short story. I put the novel down. I don't, and then I just work on the short story and nothing else but that short story. And when that's done, that's when I'll go back. I wish I could work on two things at once, but I can't. I just don't work that way. You've written multiple genres too, um, but you seem to kind of know what you're doing as far as horror goes, <laughs> at least at, at this point. Um, are you going to stay on that horror track or are you going to continue to kind of dabble in multiple genres? Well, uh, I, mean, I think someday I'd like to write. I feel like I, after writing a bunch of these you know, dark and disturbing novels, I'd kinda, I kind of have the itch to write something that's funny. You know, it'd probably still be dark, but uh, for a while, like when I first started writing, all my short stories, and this was in the 2000s, you know, the first 10 years of the 2000s. Uh, most all my short fiction were, were pretty much was pretty much horrific. And then the longer stuff that I worked on was still dark, but it was you know had like a you know a level of satire or humor to it. Hopefully, humor. I don't want to say that it was hilarious stuff. My mother <laughs> tells me it's hilarious stuff, but you know she's not always the most uh, objective critic. Uh, but yeah, like my first novels, A Little Sleep and No Sleep to Wonderland, those featured a quirky detective that had narcolepsy. And uh, in 2000, I think it was 2011, I released a novel called 
swallowing a donkey's eye with cheesy in publications. And that's just sort of like me trying to be, you know, Kurt Vonnegut, like a wild, you know, science, fi- science fiction satire that everyone has to write one of in their life, I think. Um, <laughs> so A Head Full of Ghosts is my first real horror novel, you know, and that was part of the appeal of when I first got the idea. I was like, oh, wow, this is, you know, I've written a ton of horror short stories, but I've never written a horror novel. So I was really excited to do that. So for now, yeah, I'm certainly happy uh, that people are, either being introduced to me as a, or, or I'm being introduced to them as a horror writer or, you know, happy to be called a horror writer. You know, I know William Morrow wants me to continue to, to do horrific stuff in the best way. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, I think at some points, you know, it won't be this next book that I started. This book is going to be really dark and disturbing. It's going to be really friggin' dark. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's, that's the four. Yeah. Is that yeah. What you're working on now? Yep. Um, yeah, do we have I mean, a little teaser or a little snippet of, uh, I'll say that there's going to be like a more like a bigger announcement about the book on Halloween. So since the podcast is happening on Halloween, we'll we'll just say that. But yeah, no, I'm excited that there'll be a fun little announcement about it and maybe some other books attached to that, too. So so folks who are listening to the podcast right now on Halloween, they can go to probably your Twitter page or where's the best place they can. Yeah, yeah, Twitter or Facebook, either one. Uh, Yeah, Paul G. Tremblay is Twitter. Okay, and then we'll, we'll make we'll we'll retweet that shit as well once it goes <laughs> yeah, out, so sweet. they can check out our Twitter as well. Yeah, awesome. Well, we're looking forward to finding out more about that shit. So should be awesome. We had uh, Ellen Datlow on the show to begin October, and she actually said that she thinks we're living in an age, uh, a golden age of horror short fiction. She said the best shit is coming out right now. <laughs> uh, from your perspective, since you're kind of in the horror genre, you kind of know your shit a little bit. Uh, what would you say the state of horror long fiction is? What would you say that maybe the state of the horror genre is literature wise right now? Oh, Ellen, what does she know about short fiction? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Obviously Ellen is, you know, you know, maybe the best horror short fiction editor ever. I mean, I think we can just won her seventh Hugo. Award yeah. For I mean, it, I think so. we can say yeah. that. Um, yeah. No, I, I tend to agree. I mean, I have to, you know, with one caveat that, you know, I think it's somewhat a little self-serving and obnoxious. I think every writer likes to imagine that the, the era that they're working in is a golden age. But uh, that said, I definitely think that's the case. Uh, at least in terms of the history of horror, it just seems to me there's so much different kind of work being done, you know, by, you know, so many different writers. And, you know, so much of it is just really, really good stuff and stuff that pushes the genre, pushes at the boundaries. And I agree. So with long form, I, I would point towards... Uh, someone uh, uh, who would I point towards? I would point towards Victor Laval for one. His novels, uh, Big Machine and The Devil in Silver, are just fantastic horror novels. He had a novella come out from Ellen at Tor.com called The Ballad of Black Tom, which is just amazing as well. You know, John Fiction's novel, The Fisherman, that came out this summer is excellent. I know that Laird Barron has a couple of novels coming out 2018, 2019 from Putnam. So, yeah, it's a definitely a very exciting time for, for horror fiction. As far as uh, your your latest book, Disappearance at Devil's Rock, how has it been received so far? And do you think it's uh, hitting all the right marks you, you had hoped it would? Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways the novel is uh, a much quieter novel than A Head Full of Ghosts. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of sort of narrative pyrotechnics going on in A Head Full of Ghosts. You know, there's sort of the three different narrative lines. There's the blogger, you know, there's, you know, playing with the conventions of the exorcist pretty explicitly in a disappearance of devil's rock is a, I think is a much more closer character study, you know, along with hopefully, you know, the horror, the horror and, uh, maybe some crime elements mixed in there too. So, 
Yeah, I feel like you know people have, have responded to it pretty well, and I will have to admit it was definitely this was a harder book to write for me. Partly is because it was in third person, and I'd never done a novel in third person before. All my previous novels have been in first person. Uh, Disappearance of Devil's Rock is a much lo- is the longest thing I've ever written. Um, so it was a lot of things that felt a little bit different to me, and I was sort of second my second guessing myself quite a bit along the way. But I'm very happy with the final results. <laughs> a lot of blood, sweat, and tears went into that thing, and. Especially when uh, the editing phase, I'd actually done quite a bit of changes on the editing phase as well with the help of my editor. So by the end of it, it, w- it was cool. I felt like I had this this book that I didn't anticipate that I would have, which is sort of odd to say. Because again, I mentioned A Head Full of Ghosts. I sort of knew the whole story pretty much from the start. And with Disappearance of Devil's Rock, there was a lot of changes, a lot of sort of forks in the road. You know, and that's a, I wouldn't call it a fun kind of writing necessarily. It's more like, uh, <laughs> I would describe it as, I think Dorothy Parker once said, I hate writing, but I love having written. And Disappearance of Devil's Rock, I would definitely describe as I love having written that. <laughs> On your website, you you mentioned Slenderman and the use of Twitter and making mm-hmm. things go viral. Is that associated with the book at all? It's a, yeah. The idea of a uh, creature? Sure. Like, within the story, there's this appearance, and this isn't giving, like, a ton of away. You know, people within the town of Ames, which is sort of a stand-in for Easton, Massachusetts, a real place. The state park is a real place. But anyway, at certain points in the novel, uh, you know, townspeople start seeing this shadowy figure just sort of standing outside of their window, outside like a bedroom window or something like that. And so that goes sort of crazy online. They start calling him Shadow Man. You know, and instantly there's almost like a creepypasta type of urban legend where people are seeing the Shadow Man. What does it mean? You know, what's going on at the state park? Is there sort of some sort of satanic thing happening with these teens or the teen that in particular went missing. So yeah, I definitely play with that. And you know, I think most people assume that it's hard to, to have like a disappearance that is described in the novel because we are so connected. So I wanted to make sure that, you know, the fact that everyone has cell phones and that there is Twitter, and the teens communicate a lot through Snapchat. So, you know, all that stuff actually makes it harder to find what really happened to Tommy instead of making it easier. You mentioned um, in a previous interview that uh, writing a head full of ghosts was some of the funnest writing that you had ever done. What's kind of the, the funnest moment that you had writing that book? So there's the, there are these three sort of sections that are written by a blogger who's commenting on the reality show and how it, you know, the actions of what happened to the sisters looks a lot like all these other old, older you know, horror movies that everyone's seen. You know, the actress's paranormal activity. You know, there's a part where she's sort of breaking down the thing as well. To me, that was a lot of fun. I us- I normally really struggle with nonfiction stuff like that. Like when people ask for essays, you know, I begrudgingly do them, but the essays take me so long to do uh, compared to fiction. So I was surprised that once I got into it, writing those blog posts, you know, they they were just fun to write. I enjoyed writing them. Did you research blog posts and find like random blogs on the internet and and like <laughs> let's see. Let's see how well, bloggers write. <laughs> yeah, well, I've always read them, so I mean that part w- wasn't difficult to do. And then, actually, in 2008, I think I'd written a store, a short story called "The Blog at the End of the World," and it won the the cheesy short story contest that year. And, and within that story, the story is written like a blog post, and it's a story about a you know, there may or may not be an epidemic of brain aneurysms happening. You know, so the person writing the blog believes that there's an epidemic happening and she has all this evidence. And the story itself is sort of what happens to her and happens to her friend. And within the comments, there's a troll who's basically, you know, denying everything she says, but doing it in a fairly convincing way as well. So, you know, there's that interplay of a blog. And when the story actually won the contest, uh, it was pretty cool. They actually set it up as a fake blog so you could click on the different blog pieces. You could click on uh click on the comments and it would take you to different parts of the story. So you could have read it in any order that you wanted to. So that was a lot of fun. Mm. Um, so anyway, you know, I've you know, been reading blogs for years, so I didn't have to do too much research. 
the the blog in the novel is named after Karen Brissett. That's the name of the blogger in the novel. And Karen Brissett is a real person. She's a a friend of mine, and she's a she was for a while, and may still be the number one reviewer at Goodreads.com. So, uh, and I had asked her beforehand. I said, "Hey, Karen, I'm naming someone after you in my next book." And she's like, "Great." I'm like, "Yeah, I think I'm going to use your voice in the blog too. Is that okay?" And she's like, "Yeah, sure." So, uh, yeah, the, I tried for as much as I could to make those blog posts sound like a, sound like a review that Karen had written. Um, so, and she liked it. She, I mean, obviously, it was a little bit weird <laughs> to read herself, but uh, overall, she liked it. And I did like a fun interview with her fairly recently on my own sort of blog webpage, you know, asking her about that experience and stuff like that. So, yeah, Karen is aces. Uh, we've met, you know, we've met in person a few times. And actually, I did a reading in New York City where she was there. So I read part of the blog uh, section while she was in the audience, which was fun. <laughs> yeah, you kind of have these multiple, like, layered narrative perspectives in a head full of ghosts where you have the perspective of the blogger, the perspective of the, of Mary being 23, like 15 years later. It's a lot of interesting sort of narrative uses that you have there. Well, I knew, uh, and this is not a spoiler at all for anyone who's read it. I I knew through the whole book, I really wanted to keep the question of is Marjorie possessed or is she suffering from some sort of mental illness, psychotic break? And I never explicitly outright answer that for you. Um, I've had plenty of readers you know, be able to argue at the end of the book, you know, one side or the other. And that was what I was hoping for. I wanted the reader to be able to, if they wanted to think it was possession, they could build like a, a compelling case based on the evidence in the book. And if someone wanted to believe, no, there was nothing supernatural going on, they could build an equally compelling case. So in order to do that, I really wanted to crank up the ambiguity in any way that I could. So, you know, that, that's definitely one of the roles of the blogger is for her, for her to be there, almost like a Greek chorus, to point out, hey, you know, that thing that just scared the crap out of you, that looked just like a scene from, you know, this movie, you know, so hopefully we'd be like, ah, well, is something being faked? You know, you know, what's really going on here? Do you think the, the, the reality TV show aspect adds another layer of, is this real? Is this really real? <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. I mean, cause I, you know, I think part of what happens to Mary is, you know, she you know went through this reality TV show experience you know so she doesn't know like what you know her own memories are being tainted by that mm. you know are her are her memories real or is that something that happened because of the reality show you know if she happened to watch the reality show is is she remembering what was filmed or is she remembering what actually happened to her uh, i mean memory is already sort of malleable and not trustworthy as it is so again hopefully all of it just sort of you know spins and spins and hopefully it's not too annoying for the reader i haven't had that response from people that you know the ambiguity was you know, because that's a lot to ask of a reader to read, you know, 300 pages and not necessarily have an explicit answer. So, you know, it's a thin line to sort of to try to walk, but hopefully that's what makes the book stand out a little bit. At the, at the beginning, I felt like, I don't know if this is spoilery. Spoilery. <laughs> that's a funny word. Yeah. Um, that Marjorie is just fucking with her sister. And I just got that, like, big sister vibe, like, hey, I'm going to tell you this story to scare the shit out of you. Yeah. And then, and then as it progresses, then you're like, okay, <laughs> that's a little too much. Yeah. Like how far is she going to go? So there's, there's that aspect almost of like, uh, the teenage girl being, being that way in order to get attention or to scare her parents or make herself feel uh, special or something like that. One of the more gratifying experiences from the response of a bunch of readers has been, uh, people telling me that, you know, they love the sisters and thought, you know, that their relationship was really authentic. You know, that was something, you know, I was certainly worried about. So, uh, yeah, so I'm glad that's been working. And certainly, I mean, there's a question is, you know, is Marjorie faking it the whole time or, you know, for, mm. 
a myriad of different reasons. Now, we've talked about uh, awards on the show before, like the Hugos, the Gamel Awards, as, as well as the Bram Stoker Award. We had uh, Nicole Cushing on the show uh-huh. before. But one thing we really haven't dove into on the show is the Shirley Jackson Awards, okay. of which you are a juror. Juror. <laughs> juror. Uh, so for the unlearned who may not know what the Shirley Jackson Award is, tell us a little bit about that award and how you got into doing that and how you go about picking winners for that award. Sure. So, geez, I think are we in our ninth year coming up? So it's been a while since we started it. Uh, I say we, so it was myself, writers John Langan and Sarah Langan, not related. <laughs> Writer Brett Cox and our friend Joanne Cox. Those two aren't related either. <laughs> uh, so basically, yeah, the five of us, had, I'd sort of heard that the International Horror Guild Awards were going to no longer be. So I kind of thought that would be a void in the I don't know, horror award arena that you know, maybe we could fill. And at the same time, help promote the works of Shirley Jackson in general. I mean, that's sort of what, that's really, besides giving the award, that's our other main goal is just to help increase awareness of Shirley Jackson's amazing work. So, yeah, it's a juror award. Every year there's there's five jurors, and, you know, they read as, you know, as deeply and widely as they can. And the jurors are always other writers or editors. And it's been really, you know, amazing to see all these, you know, very talented people be willing to give up their time because it is a ton of reading. I was only a juror for the first couple of years. And since then, I've been, you know, one of the administrators, you know, behind the scenes, just helping to, to keep it run. You know, Joanne does most of the work, you know, but sometimes we have to pitch in to, you know, make sure publishers are sending the jurors the books and, you know, I have to keep the website going and all that fun stuff. So we're definitely very proud of the award. People's response to it has been great. It's also been fun to see. I, I didn't realize how many people adored Shirley Jackson's work. And I think it's sort of like a cool sort of happenstance. And it must have been sort of one of those zeitgeist things that we started the awards. And then, you know, at the same time, you know, Ruth Franklin just put out a big biography about Shirley Jackson. And, you know, I feel like that she's not because of us, but it's almost like, Somehow we happen to tap into the same feeling where maybe we're living in a time that feels like a Shirley Jackson time and she's coming back into to favor and popularity. Yeah. So I, I imagine you've mentioned in interviews before that she, her work was uh, foundational in your writing. Uh, where where do you recommend people start with with Shirley Jackson and how would you kind of summarize her body of work? Oh, absolutely. I mean, A Head Full of Ghosts, Mary is a, a nod and a wink and whatever you want to call it to uh, Shirley Jackson's We Have Always Lived in the Castle. Um, and one of the characters in that novel is named Maricat Blackwood. So Mary is, you know, certainly patterned after Maricat. That, that's one of my favorite novels of hers. Um, I think people obviously should start with, or maybe not obviously, but they should certainly start with The Haunting of Hill House, you know, which, which you know, might be, you know, it's got to be top five horror novels written in the 20th century. Um, and her short, her short fiction is a lot of fun too. You know, just not only the lottery, but one of my favorite stories of hers is called The Intoxicated. And then in 2000 words, she manages to create such an off-putting, unsettling story where not a lot happens. It's a conversation between a drunk, lecherous kind of Trump guy <laughs> and a, you know, a 16-year-old teen. And uh, yeah, now she, um, she does some really cool stuff. Uh, I, I feel like it's the kind of stuff that I aspire to write. You know, it's sort of blurs the line of genre and you're never really exactly sure what's happening or not and in a good way as far as award awards go um you know there's some controversy with like the hugos with um certain puppies making slates and and sort of things like that what sort of statement do you hope the shirley jackson award makes as far as the horror industry goes well i know sort of my sort of agenda for it personally and i think most of the other i think all of the other uh administrators would agree with this is we wanted to show that the horror genre is healthy it's bigger than you think it is in terms of the amount of people working within the genre 
um, that there are plenty of books that, you know, it might not say horror on the spine, but these are actually works of horror. And a lot of these are coming from either mainstream publishers or publishers that you would consider literary publishers. So that's sort of been my take on the award is to not only to talk about how big and how great the horror genre is and is it continues to get better. You know, at the same time, you know, so many of our nominees have, you know, have come from independent presses. There's clearly a ton of great work being done in the indies as well. Yeah. So there you go. That's my manifesto. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're you're a math teacher right now, so you're not even a full time writer. Correct. I think people would maybe presume you're a big deal. Got your book made into a movie. <laughs> Stephen King thinks it's awesome. Obviously, you must all just sit in your room and write all day. But no, you're you're a math teacher and you have a full time job. Do you ever think you'll make that transition to full time? Or uh, maybe so. I would like to someday. That's going to be a few years. <laughs> We'll see. I teach at a private school. My son gets to go for free, so I can't nice. I can't leave before he graduates because tuition is quite <laughs> tuition is quite expensive. Uh, I mean, I, I enjoy teaching. The only reason I would ever leave teaching was if I could write full time. Um, so we'll see. You know, I think if the movie happens, you know, I think that would go a long way towards achieving that goal. But you know, it's you can't bank on a movie happening. You know, as exciting as obviously everything is, things seem to be progressing in the right direction. You know. They don't actually outright buy the rights till the day they start filming. You know, the movie's been optioned, so I, you know, you get money for the 18 months that they they have the option. But yeah, I mean, if they start filming, that's the day I'm running around down the streets, you know, either <laughs> naked or just throwing <laughs> throwing singles into the air. <laughs> singles only. Yeah, that's it. Because I'm cheap. <laughs> uh, What's a typical uh, writing day look like for you? Uh, I wish I had a typical writing day. Uh, mm. It's uh, it's very seasonal for me because of the school year. So right now I'm in the midst of the busiest time of the year for work, which is essentially September through February. Because, uh, you know, September I start back up at school. And because I teach at a private school, most of the faculty have to coach a couple of sports as well. So right now I'm in the middle of the eighth grade football season. I'm the eighth grade football coach. And then in the winter I coach the JB High School basketball team. So right now it's mainly during at night if I can squeeze in an hour here or there uh, or, you know, or on the weekends. But uh, once I'm done coaching in February, you know, so in the spring from March through the summer tends to be my most productive time. You know, in the summer, I, I prefer to write in the morning if I can. And if I'm going good on a novel, my goal, my daily goal is 500 words a day. You know, I don't always make that goal. Sometimes I exceed it, which is great. But uh, that's sort of what I, I set as a number for myself. Don't you think uh, being a teacher is probably one of the best jobs a writer can have because of the breaks and the uh, downtime you may occasionally have? <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. I, and I think in a weird way, it's a little bit better for me as a math teacher as well. I mean, I feel like if I was an English teacher, I'd be using sort of those same writerly muscles all day long. I, and I think I'd be less likely to want to sit and read. Yeah, maybe that's not the case. Or sit and read or, or sit and write after, you know, having read a bunch of crappy ninth grade essays. <laughs> uh, yeah, so with math, it's like, ah, you know, you know, when I'm reading something after I come home, it feels new to me. Like, oh, I haven't been doing this all day. If I'm writing, it's like, okay, I haven't been doing this all day already. So I, I think that's a help. So you don't go home and read books about math? No, I do not. <laughs> Except for this year, I have to teach uh, BC calculus for the first time. So that's kind of kicking my butt right now. Ugh. I have to teach myself the second semester of stuff. So we'll see how that goes. Now you have a master's degree in math. I don't know. What, what fucking math do you have to take to get a master's degree? Like calculus 2000? <laughs> well, yeah, I told the, when I tell the kids the other day, I figured it out. I think I took 15 or 16 courses after calculus. I mean, it, it's been a while, so I, I can't. I mean, at that point, it just becomes like symbols and 
alchemy right and like <laughs> magical change. spells and well shit yeah. i want to go back to school and do that man that sounds awesome <laughs> yeah i know so it's been so long it's like oh, i don't you know i i don't remember any of that stuff I, I must have known it at one point do you implement any of that math learning into your writing is that is any of that statistics or calculus or anything <laughs> geometry transposed geometry. Your... yeah no i mean i feel like maybe maybe like i sort of write analytically in one sense that I'm not someone who can skip around. I know there are some writers who I'll write on this chapter today and I'll write on this chapter today. I can't do that. I have to go in order. Even if the novel isn't going to be linear and most of my novels aren't linear, linear, that's a math term, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I start where I think the book starts and I go in order here with my 500 words and I edit as I go. But I mean, I know there are other writers who work like that too. So I don't think that's necessarily a math thing, but that's all I can come up with because I have not written a math story. <laughs> the closest I've come is I made Stephen Graham Jones a, unattract- a physically unattractive math tutor in A Head Full of Ghosts. <laughs> that should be your next novel, Math Horror. Math Horror, yeah. Fiction. yeah. I think all you have to say is math and most people react to horror anyway. Right. <laughs> well, we're just about out of time. Okay. Uh, but we do have a, a lot of writers who listen to the show, so I suppose we'll pick your brain while- whilst you are on the show, Graham. Sure. What sort of advice would you offer to uh, aspiring horror authors, burgeoning, waiting to break into the industry to get professionally published? What sort of direction would you give them, uh, inspiration or encouragement or tips or advice for uh, starting their career? You know, it's funny. I think the, it's both like good news and bad news. I feel like every, you know, every writer is so different in how they work. You know, part of the, the hard part is finding the, what works best for you. So that can be a little intimidating because there's no, I feel like there's no – there's no like one piece of advice anybody can give. But I will say for me, I think uh, one of the most important things that happened to me was I, I, I started reading, you know, I love horror and I've spent my whole life in horror, but it was very important for me to read stuff that wasn't horror. I think I became, I know I became a better writer the day I started reading, uh, you know, like Kurt Vonnegut and, you know, other writers, you know, Amy Bender, people who aren't horror writers. So you cer- certainly should continue to read horror. Obviously you enjoy it, but you should try to read you know, as widely as you can, and even things that you don't necessarily like. So then you can try to decide, okay, why doesn't this work? Or why don't I like this? So I guess that would be my biggest piece of advice. And I guess otherwise, you know, in general, I'll, I'll harken back to when I talked about the 500 words a day thing. Um, you know, give yourself permission to fail with whatever goals that you, you know, give yourself because you don't want to browbeat yourself up too much. I mean, some of that's going to happen naturally. You know, some of it is good. I mean, if you are, that means you're putting a little bit of pressure on yourself to, to write well. But you don't want to get to the point where the self-doubt and the browbeating, you know, becomes something that's going to prevent you from writing. So, you know, whatever writing goals I, I give myself, I, I try to set them so that, A, they're, they're goals that I can usually make most of the time. But if I don't make the goal, it's okay. You know, and I won't beat myself up too much. This this episode is airing uh, right before National Novel Writing Month starts. Mm-hmm. So, what is your opinion on that? Like uh, squeezing out a shit <laughs> shit turd of a novel in 30, <laughs> 30, uh, 30 days, which I've done several times, and I'm a yeah. big supporter of. But yeah. usually, nothing written in thirty days is going to be beautiful. Right. Um, well, I mean, well, I think anything you're going to write is going to help you. I mean. Even yeah. if it's bad, like, you know, I was laughing at the short story that I wrote that I shit canned earlier, but, you know, I'm glad I wrote it. You know, I learned from it. I know why it doesn't work. So, you know, especially if you're a new writer, you, you got to do stuff like that. Yeah, I would say it's unlikely. I would just say it's unlikely that after 30 days, you're going to have something that you're going to be able to publish. You just kind of have to know going into it that that's going to happen. But at the same time, that doesn't mean if you spent like another year working on what you had started during those 30 days, that doesn't mean that it couldn't become something that is publishable. 
Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's okay to, you know, I guess it, what I was saying before is to try to achieve that balance of, you know, it's okay to dream, you know, it's okay to have these lofty goals, but at the same time, you know, be a little bit realistic with yourself in both ways. Be realistic in what you can achieve and what you can't achieve. And you, you've faced discouragement um, oh, yeah. in the past, um, recently, well, not recently, but within the last few years, you actually took a little bit of time off. From from writing, even though you'd published novels and, and and such, but you actually took a little bit of time off yeah. uh, um, from writing. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Well, after it, um, it was No Sleep to Wonderland had come out, uh, that was February of 2010. My, you know, I had a different an editor. My original editor left. You know, they sort of gave me a crappy cover. There clearly wasn't going to be a big push behind the book from Henry Holt. Um, and to top it all off, the, the day the book came out, Amazon had pulled all of Macmillan's titles off of their website because they were, you know, they were negotiating, quote unquote, with uh, mm -hmm. Macmillan. You know, so that just totally killed the book. You know, and Henry Holt had no interest in further books for me. So, you know, I was really disillusioned and disheartened. And, uh, you know, I definitely, I, I can't remember exactly how long I, I didn't write after that, but it was certainly months that I went without writing much of anything. And I sort of allowed myself to fall into that pit of you know self-pity but also jealousy of other writers like geez you know i'm as good as they are how come you know they've had the success and no good comes from that i certainly luckily i was able to emerge from that you know the self-pity and and more i think more damaging is sort of the envy of other writers mm. you know it's impossible not to have both of those i mean i'm still jealous of other writers but i don't know i've been able to to figure out ways just to dismiss that um you know it's hard not to it's impossible i mean we're all humans we, we're gonna you know as writers we're trying to you know get these publishing deals and it's hard not to be jealous of other people when they get their deals but you gotta know it's just not <laughs> it's not healthy and it's not going to help you as a writer so yeah i don't know i just uh it's hard to describe like why i like writing but on some level obviously i do because i kept doing it even after you know tons of discouragements i mean even when i got my agent back in 2006 i think i went through a year and a half and over 200 rejections <laughs> Before I landed my agent, and it was with a novel that we weren't even we we didn't even sell. I mean, so the novel served its purpose. I was able to get my agent with it, but so I don't know. I've always taken like the long view of it. I mean, I think some of that's easier because I have had a full time teaching job. I haven't had to worry about you know just you know putting food on the table and paying the mortgage you know solely through my writing. So I've been able. I've had the luxury of taking like a longer view of things. I don't know. I just just keep going, just to keep trying to get better. And again, listen, I I browbeat myself all the time, like. It hasn't gotten much better. Like I usually, there are days where I'll sit down and just not do anything for 30, 45 minutes besides mess around the internet because I'm like, ah, this, what I'm doing isn't good. So I try to distract myself and I don't know, there's that, always that struggle, but somehow, you know, I just get to a point where it's like, all right, shut up, sit down and write <laughs> and then worry about if it's good or not afterwards. So moral of the story, perseverance? Yeah, I think that's what all writers have in common besides being lunatics <laughs> is... <laughs> you know, having a certain level of perseverance, absolutely. Well, and you could just bring up that tweet from Stephen King. Just if you're feeling down, just yeah, oh, man, yeah. fuck yeah, look at that. And I'm, I'm afraid I have shit. a back tattoo like, of it. <laughs> <laughs> I tattoo it on my well, face uh, or something. Yeah, it probably should be. It should be a neck tattoo, right? Because no one really can see that. Yeah, hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is the Halloween episode. Do you have any plans for Halloween, Paul Tremblay? You gonna go trick or treating or? Oh yeah. Anything fun uh, like that? Probably my last year, my daughter might go out trick-or-treating, so we'll do that. The week, that weekend, before Halloween, I'll be at World Fantasy Convention, because the Head Full of Ghosts is up for the World Fantasy Awards, so that'll uh, be exciting. Yeah. So that'll be, I guess, the Halloween weekend. What's your uh, Halloween tradition? Anything fun that you guys do? You throw a party, bop for apples? Or... 
toilet paper yeah, houses. Uh, or... I would say nothing that's a tradition. I mean, within recent years, we have some friends that live in the same town. They always have a Halloween party. So, you know, we'll go to that. Last year, I think, was my best costume. I was I was Quint from Jaws last year. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I don't Quint, Quint's clothes in my, my closet somehow. <laughs> um <laughs> So this year, I haven't quite decided what my costume is going to be. You can dress as Phil. As Phil? All right. What does that entail? Yeah. Well, just wear a black shirt and look depressed. Okay. Do you, and, do you uh, drink Narragansett beer like Quince? Because I have some of those cans still left over from my costume. <laughs> I drink beer. You're in Japan, so Kiernan? Kiernan, uh, yeah. Kiernan, right. Kiernan, yeah. Uh, yeah. I drink that sometimes, but right now I'm drinking Corona, oh. which is weird because <laughs> I'm <Yeah>. in Japan. <laughs> That's classy. Well, Paul Tremblay, we're just about ready to wrap up here. Do you have any con appearances since this is airing on Halloween? Okay. Do you have anything coming up November, December, January that folks can come meet up with you? Oh, November. No, there's a few things in October that we've missed in the, our time uh, our time Damn warp it. here. Uh, I guess February I'll be at Boscone, which is a science fiction convention in Boston. Um, I think it's the third weekend in February. Yeah. Other than that? Cool. Um, no, nothing. I'll be hunkered in the bunker trying to get this novel written. Teaching math. Teaching, and teaching math, books. yeah. And then as far as social media-wise, uh, Facebook is a good place to track you down, as well as Twitter. Yeah. Yep. People can stalk you there and retweet you. And <laughs> Yeah, I like I like the retweeting over stalking. Okay, all right. Good to know. Good to, yeah. know. Good to know. Maybe all one right. day you can, uh, you can tweet out something about another author, and you can continue the chain of Stephen King awesomeness and yeah. inspire... Yeah. That would be awesome. I've got, yeah, I've gone the other way. I usually tweet about how awful these other writers are. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I, 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 uh, just today I, I tweeted about Jeffrey Ford's uh, Natural History of Hell, which is a, you know, one of the better short story collections I've read this year. Oh, that's cool. cool. Yeah, like Hell's, hell's, hell's hell awesome. Hell is awesome. Yeah. Hell is awesome. <laughs> do you sells think, a lot of books. <laughs> do you think Satan is, is scary? Satan is scary? <laughs> uh, the idea of him, I suppose. Yeah. Do you think Satanists are scary? <laughs> Only when they wear robes. Oh, okay. Like, you know, the robes that they wear in um, Run from the Devil. It's that 1970s movie. Like Loretta Swit and a few other 70s actors are in this RV being chased by a bunch of Satanists <laughs> in robes. <laughs> nice. Well, Paul Tremblay, thank you so much for joining us on yeah, the show. We have to uh, end it there, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're gonna end it. We're gonna end it here. October has come to its climax, ladies and gentlemen, with author Paul Tremblay. Uh, a head full of ghosts and uh, disappearance at Devil's Rock available on Amazon right now. Everybody, go buy that shit immediately. Yeah. Uh, Paul, thank thank you so much for joining us on the program today and sharing uh, your insights and wisdom on horror and writing and uh, authorliness and all that good stuff. We appreciate your time very much today. Thank you, Rob and Phil. This is a lot of fun. I appreciate it. You can find us online at facebook.com slash thegrimtidingspodcast or on Twitter at GrimDarkFiction. Download the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean, and if you like the show, please share it and leave a review. Be sure to drop by our Facebook group, Grim Dark Fiction Readers and Writers, for daily updates on all things Grimdark. On behalf of co-host Philip Overby and myself, Rob Matheny, thanks for listening to this episode of the Grim Tidings Podcast. We'll see you next time. Bye.